Hello, hello, and welcome to Wednesday. Today we get to have a conversation about planning a music curriculum. My name is Victoria Bowler, and this is episode 23 of Elemental Conversations. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, this is a big topic that we could spend a lot of time talking about. There are two main sources for this question. Uh, The other day, last week, I did a question box on Instagram and asked just for general topics uh, here as we start the year. And two questions specifically uh, were about backwards planning and identifying sub skills for elementary music skills. And then the second one said, I'm overwhelmed with starting to plan. I'm a second year teacher. How would you start? If we were to take this elemental approach to planning a curriculum, if we were to think about the actual core components of planning out your year for elementary general music, there would be a couple steps that we would take. So let's talk about these big picture categories. The first category is our values. Then we'll move on to a big, gigantic musical map. From there, we'll make a scope and sequence or a pacing guide. And then finally, we will come up with specific teaching strategies with concept plans. So let's jump in with that order. There are two documents in particular that I find to be just so practically valuable as we construct a curriculum that is based on our own student groups and our own student needs. Let's camp out on this idea just for one quick moment. There is not a curriculum resource on this planet that you can pull from a bookshelf and use in your classroom or pull from the internet and use in your classroom. And I am including uh, my curriculum in this. I am including work that I do as an independent contractor for other uh, music education companies. Nothing will translate exactly perfectly from the screen or from a book into the real life of your classroom. And that is because no one knows your students but you. So when we have this conversation about planning a curriculum, definitely, definitely you can use a curriculum from someone else. It's just with the understanding that all of these activities and songs and assessments and learning experiences, all of those need to pass your smell test first. And that brings up another good point before we talk about how to plan your own curriculum. Even if you are using someone else's curriculum resource, even if you, uh, you know, pick up Spotlight on Music, or if you are using Quaver or whatever it is, even if you are using someone else's curriculum, you still need to make decisions about where those elements will fall within your year and where it will make sense to pause and back up. So we're definitely talking about how to plan a music curriculum, but I think that, uh, you know, keeping with this idea of elemental conversations, the actual elemental part of this conversation is thinking about how to think about a curriculum, which is values to a big picture map to a scope and sequence, and then finally to teaching strategies. So. (laughs) Let's talk about values. All of us have a mission statement. 
the reason that we went into teaching in the first place and the reason that instead of teaching biology or math or being a second grade general teacher, we went into music. And there's a very specific reason. There's a specific reason that we were drawn to education and music education and this age group of exploring music very specifically. So when we craft our value statement, our mission statement, it might be something that starts like, in this music class, a ba ba ba, or music is a place where a ba ba ba, or uh, students in music learn blink. In other words, what is the whole point of what we are doing here? Because in this process, we are going to have to make some decisions. We're going to make some decisions about what to include in our curriculum. And by necessity, that means that we are making decisions about what to exclude in our music curriculum. And again, this is the same if you are kind of coming up with your own curriculum from scratch, or if you are using a collection of activities from many different sources, we're going to have to make some decisions. And so having this grounded value statement that we just know Maybe we have it written down. Maybe it's in the back of our head. But having this value statement can really help uh, help us choose the direction that we want to go as we craft student experiences with our music curriculum. So that is our values. That is where we're starting. Okay, let's go to something that is a little bit more practical and not quite as abstract as talking about our values. And this is a curriculum outline, a map of your program. And I want to camp out on this document for a while because this is one of the most helpful references that we can have if we are unsure of where to start. So a curriculum outline is just what I call that big picture document that maps out the entire program. And it maps it out from a consciously learned concept standpoint. And that's important. This is not the only time that students will experience these concepts, but this is the time that they will be highlighted with conscious vocabulary. And I make that distinction because let's imagine that uh, in, oh gosh, let's just say that in your curriculum, your second graders are working on melodic patterns with mi, re, do. That does not mean that through the entire second grade year, students are only working on mi, re, do, right? <laughs> uh, or if they are working on, let's just say half notes, that doesn't mean that they will never experience compound meter. That never, uh, that doesn't mean that they will never move to six, eight, or that they will not use, uh, you know, syncopated rhythms. That just means from a conscious vocabulary standpoint, we are going going to highlight using half notes in second grade. So this distinction of what students will know consciously and what they will experience, those are kind of two separate things. And for the purpose of a curriculum outline, I just want to zoom in very specifically on what conscious vocabulary students will use at each point in our program. When we do this, we are going to think about where we want our fifth graders to leave or, you know, whoever you have at the very end of your program from a musical concept standpoint. 
So things like rhythm and pitch and harmony and texture and form and expression and anything else from those big categories, what do you want students to know? So we'll start at the fifth grade level. What is the picture of musicianship that we want to see when students leave our programs or again, whatever uh, grade level you see last? What is that picture of musicianship? And then from there, we can work backwards. This is a really powerful document because when we start planning with a curriculum outline, instead of just with activities, we get a much more grounded sense of where we're going. We don't need to search for things on the internet like fun activities for fall or, uh, you know, fun activities for second grade. We're not taking that approach because even though we're going to likely use fun activities for fall uh, and we're going to use fun activities in second grade, our lessons have a very specific purpose and a very specific direction because we know exactly what each grade level is going to accomplish from a musical standpoint. Something else to talk about when it comes to a curriculum outline, I mentioned that this is broken down by musical concept rather than, or musical element, rather than by things like how to play instruments or holiday themes or musical genres. There is this framing, at least in this specific view of curriculum design, there is a framing about the structure of music and that is intentional. You will find lots of different curricula and curricula documents that are structured differently. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. The, the reason that uh, even though those other ways of framing a curriculum are very valid and they are valuable and you might choose to use them. The reason I appreciate framing music education around the structure of music as opposed to something like uh, a unit on recorder or a unit on improvisation is that when we structure music based on elements, students can apply that knowledge to any instrument they want or any genre or any other musical experience. So at the end of the day, my curriculum is not trying to teach you how to play recorder. My curriculum is trying to teach you about how to think about pitch in community so that you can apply that understanding of pitch to recorder or ukulele or bard instruments or electric guitar or marimba or whatever it is. So that's why we are structuring this curriculum again in this framework. That is why we structure it around the elements of music. It's because for our purposes as elementary general music teachers, I want you to have a structural understanding of music. That way you can apply it to many other instruments and genres and experiences. Let's talk about that. We've talked about these vertical streams, the, these big vertical categories of musical elements, uh, how music exists in time, in other words, in rhythm, how music exists in high and low motion or in pitch, how music exists in form and texture, expression and harmony and everything like that. Those are the big categories that we're using in our curriculum outline. So there is not a specific grade level that is going to work on rhythm. And there is not a specific part of the year where rhythm is going to be an isolated unit. And we can talk more about that in a moment. Those are our big vertical 
categories that every single grade level goes through, but we are working on different, uh, let's just take the example of rhythm. We're working on different rhythmic patterns in each grade level, and that is supposed to spiral from year to year and uh, give a, a grounded understanding with new experiences and new rhythmic patterns at every point along the curriculum. So that's a rhythmic progression, again, vertical. We also have these horizontal streams, things like musical skills and then how we interact with each other. We'll talk about that in, in just one moment. Let's look at musical skills, singing, speaking, playing, moving, reading, writing, improvising, arranging, composing, and orally identifying. That is a very basic list of things that we want students to do to express their musical understanding, the actions that students are going to take. In every grade level and all throughout the year, these are the horizontal skills that students are using. Horizontal to mean that they are happening all the time, kind of woven into every musical experience. That's the musical skills standpoint. And then there are also these uh, ways of thinking how students are going to interact with each other and the material and themselves as they learn music. Uh, a very um, popular way to frame this is with social and emotional competencies. And off the top of my head, uh, from Castle, those are self-awareness, uh, responsible decision-making, relationship skills, um, social awareness, and that is four, so I'm missing one. Um, self-awareness, self-management is the one I'm missing. Those are fabulous, fabulous ways to think about how students are going to interact again with themselves and others and the learning process all throughout our curriculum. And this is again, another horizontal stream, another, um, maybe framework and maybe another way of thinking or a companion way of thinking that is not the castle social and emotional competencies is something from the national core arts standards. And they talk about the dispositions that students need to, um, exhibit in order to be effective musicians. And those dispositions from the national core arts standards are collaboration, flexibility, goal setting, inquisitiveness, openness and respect for the ideas of others, responsible risk taking, self-reflection and self-discipline and perseverance. So when I go through that list, we can see, and that by the way, is not something I know off the top of my head. I looked that up, <laughs> uh, but when we go through that list, we see a lot of continuity between these dispositions from the national core arts standards and social and emotional competencies. So that's just something to think about when we have our vertical streams in, again, I want to say in this framing of music education and this framing of curriculum design, we have these vertical streams of the musical elements. And then we have these horizontal streams that students experience all the time through our entire program. So musical skills and then social and emotional competencies and, or these dispositions. And this is something that is probably easier to see than it is for me to like, explain. <laughs> um, so if you just want to Google Bowler curriculum outline, um, or really if you Google um, music curriculum outline, I'm sure you'll find this article or articles uh, around this topic from victoriabowler.com. 
So wrapping up this big, long conversation about vertical streams and horizontal streams, there is a specific year that students are going to consciously engage with a specific rhythmic or melodic pattern, but there is not a specific year that we will improvise. As an example, we are going to improvise at every grade level and every class throughout the year. So that's the difference. Let's talk about where to begin because all of this sounds uh, maybe fun to you. It certainly sounds fun to me. Uh, maybe this sounds fun to you and you're like, yes, I'm on board. I like this idea of having one map where at a glance I can see what my curriculum is doing at each level of my program. So where to begin? We can find a curriculum outline and adapt it for your situation. That is what I would recommend. So again, if you want to Google Victoria Bowler curriculum outline, or if you are in the planning binder, you already have access to these documents. Um, if you have been at a school for several years, then you will write down what you know you have taught. And then using this curriculum map as kind of a guide, you will move on to the next logical thing. So what's the next logical thing in that progression? And then if you are new to a school, you might be prepared for everyone to start at the very beginning of this learning sequence. And that is totally fine. Again, if you Google Victoria Bowler curriculum outline, you will find uh, some examples for something that is a possible interpretation of a Kodai inspired classroom and a possible interpretation of an ORF inspired classroom. And obviously there are many more um, inspirations that we could take <laughs> to construct a curriculum, but those are two to get started. And then there's also a curriculum for older beginners. And that might be a nice place just to reference. And then same thing with that article that you'll find if you just do that Google search. I share all of the references that I used to put those curriculum maps together. So this is not something that I just kind of like had it in dream and just wrote down. And this is something that has come from looking at many different sources from different uh, frameworks of teaching music. So having something that you can look at and adapt for your own situation can be really helpful. Let's talk about something that's very, very important with a curriculum outline. This is huge. Having a progression of musical understanding that really matters. The specific progression you choose matters much, much less. And this is a really common misconception about the curriculum planning process. It's not people get into these really, um, I don't know, heated discussions about when to introduce six, eight. And if we went to, if we need to start with do, re, mi, mi, re, do, or with so me and so me la, oh my goodness. And we could go on a whole rabbit trail there. And that would be really, really exciting. But the idea is, um, you know, and, and it's kind of, I want to, talk about that for a moment as well. Like you're not supposed to introduce notation until second grade, all of these things. It is not about uh, choosing one specific framework and holding that religiously. The point is to have a logical progression of musical concepts that students can build off of so, the, so that they have knowledge that builds year after year, after year, after year. So if you choose to start with mi, re, do, do, re, mi, then know that there's a lot of research behind that choice. There's a lot of good reasons to choose that. So start with do, re, mi, 
and then look for the logical next step. If you choose not to introduce notation until second grade, fabulous! Write down the experiences that students will have before second grade and then look for the next logical step. So having a progression matters, but choosing the one that works for you is what is actually important there. So I'm not really interested in um, big debates about when to introduce 6-8. <laughs> introduce it at the time that it makes sense for you and have a curriculum that moves in a logical progression of musical concepts and skills. So now we have camped out on this curriculum outline document. <laughs> uh, and just to wrap that up and put a beautiful little bow, that is the document that says what students are going to know from a conscious standpoint, what they will know at each point in your program. So now we have this big zoomed out picture of our year. And the next step is to break it down. So now I know what I am doing on a, on a programmatic level. And then now I need to know what I'm going to do grade level to grade level throughout the year. So once we know this big picture, we can break it down. This is a pacing guide for what we're going to teach and when. There are a couple different ways to do this, and this is where you see different frameworks for music education really start to shine, and that's a very exciting thing. When we break this down, a very, very simple way to do this is just by month. So I have my big picture curriculum outline, and let's say, this is just as an example, let's say I'm going to Google Bowler Curriculum Outline, <laughs> uh, and let's look at... Uh, in second grade, let's imagine, no, let's do third grade. Let's imagine that we are going to do the pentatonic scale. We're going to review the pitches in the pentatonic scale before we move on to low law and low so, all in third grade. So I might decide that in September and October and November, I might, for this year, if I were teaching uh, with this framework, I might choose all of those three months to work on the Do pentatonic scale. And I might choose that because I know that given the experiences of the past year and a half, my students are probably going to need a lot of work on uh, reviewing this understanding, even though they've had some experiences with it in the past in second grade. So I might choose to break that down by month and say on a month level, this is the melodic concept that we are working on. And then I might choose September and October and November for this year to review all of the previous rhythmic concepts there. Now notice that I have a melodic priority and a rhythmic priority. And that again is, uh, that has to do with the different frameworks that we can use to kind of structure our curriculum. But the important thing is that our scope and sequence is moving us in a manageable way throughout the year. So we've talked about monthly planning. A, a different way to do it, and this is the way I prefer to do it, is not breaking it down by month, but instead breaking it down by week. And just saying like in each week throughout the year, what will be my lesson focus? Now, some people go through their scope and sequence, this pacing guide, and they write the specific song and the specific learning activity that they are going to do and the specific learning outcome and all of that. I am not quite that organized. Instead, in my curriculum, or excuse me, in my scope and sequence, I want to know what week of the year do I need to highlight these concepts. 
and where in my learning progression and the one that I really love is prepare present practice where in that learning um, trajectory are we going to be at each week throughout the year the reason I like using a weekly layout instead of a monthly layout is if I have, let's say, a snow day and an assembly and then I uh, am sick. Okay, well, all of a sudden I have lost three Mondays, which means I probably in a typical month, I have moved from having a whole month to now having one lesson. And if I were to just look at this from a monthly scope and sequence, I would not have a good sense of how much time I have in each month. And so for that reason, I like to break things down weekly. Now, some people look at a weekly layout and they're like, whoa, that is too much information. Just give me the bullet points, please. And so if that is you, if you don't need to see how every tiny little piece fits in, like little puzzle pieces throughout the week and throughout the month and the year, uh, then by all means, break this down by month. And so for that, you will just say all of the months that you're teaching throughout the year, September, October, November, all the way through May or June, and you'll just say what uh, elements you want to highlight in those months. Now, something that we get hung up on when it's time to create a scope and sequence, when it's time to create a pacing guide for each grade level throughout the year, we can get hung up on this idea that I'm going to make a plan, but then I'm not going to stick with it. And that is really tough for us. What I want to say about that approach to creating a scope and sequence is that it is not about sticking to the plan. It is about knowing that you have a framework for your year and knowing that what you have planned to do from a big picture goals and values setting, that that is actually feasible. So we don't want to get to the end of the year and um, let's say we have a concert that's supposed to be um, the the culmination of everything that students have learned <laughs> we don't want to get to two months before that concert and say oh my gosh oh goodness gracious i am not at the place i thought i would be at the end of this year we want to make expectations so that we're not panicked we want to make expectations so that we know what is reasonable for us to accomplish so it's not about sticking to the plan it's about having a framework for the year this framework can be flexible and we can go back and edit it. But in the same way that uh, if we were to just get in a car and start driving, we could have a really fun trip unless we expected to have a specific destination. <laughs> and if we expect to have a specific destination at the end of the trip, we're going to need to map the route. And that's what our scope and sequence does. We can, if I want to continue with this analogy, we can make different stops along the way of our route and we can kind of camp out here for a while, right? Like let's say that we want to stop at this specific restaurant and go see this local sightseeing thing. We can camp out there, but we know the next steps that we're going to take when we're done camping out in that specific um, area. Okay. Roadmap. Uh, analogy is over now. <laughs> uh, that's our scope and sequence. It is just breaking down the trajectory of concepts throughout the year. And those concepts come from the curriculum outline. Finally, this is the, the more actionable, um, the more like uh, you see it play out in the classroom much more. These documents are choosing songs and then the actual concept plans, the actual teaching strategies. 
The curriculum outline and the scope and sequence, those can seem like a lot. And they are. They are a lot of like big brain power to put together because it is a very high level. High level as in zoomed out thinking. When it comes to concept plans and song lists, this is the actual activity section. And this is where a lot of us start our planning process. We start here at what it will uh, what it will actually look like, what our classes will be taken up with, as opposed to the actual purpose of each class and how they lead together. What's that strand that connects all of our classes throughout the year? What do they really lead towards in terms of musical understanding? When we know what we are going to teach, the next step is to choose the context. And in our teaching as music teachers, the context comes from repertoire. And this is another example where you can do a Google search to find, and I have these lists as well, you can do Google searches to find um, songs to teach So Me Law. And you'll come up with a nice pretty list of songs to teach So Me Law. And that's a great list to use. But what's more important is uh, I have a, a podcast episode that I did fairly recently about choosing repertoire. And even more important than finding a beautiful list on the internet, even if it's from victoriabowler.com, what is more important is that it's a song that you connect with and it's a song that will serve your students well. So we want to choose our repertoire with intention. And after that context has been created with the repertoire we are going to use, whether that is um, folk music from the American tradition, folk music from perhaps another tradition, and there's a conversation there around that, um, or popular music, when we have that convers uh, that context created, now we get to decide how students are going to experience these musical elements with that musical context, the repertoire that we have gathered. That is the concept plans. In our concept plans, we are going to think very strategically about moving students from the known to the unknown. Let's talk about that little phrase very quickly, because as educators, we might say, no, 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 it's not from the known to the unknown. I'm trying to teach them. So shouldn't it be the unknown to the known? And yes, ultimately, we will go from the unknown to the known. But we are not going to start with the new information and say, uh, boys and girls, this is a quarter note. Let's read the definition of a quarter note. Great. Now let's do all of these songs about quarter notes. That is one way to approach music education. It's one that a lot of people use, and I understand the uh, the draw to that way of thinking. What I want to steer us towards considering instead is looking at where students are right now. What are the experiences that we can craft so that students are engaging with these rhythmic understandings? Again, if we want to take this idea of a quarter note, so that students are engaging with these rhythmic um, experiences. And then after they have this experience, we will notice something about this game we have been playing or this song we have been singing or this instrumental piece we have been working with. And we will say, again, if we are doing uh, quarter notes in common time, we might notice how many sounds we hear on each beat of, let's say, a four or an eight bar phrase. And then after noticing something about this rhythmic 
um, understanding about this rhythmic element, then that's when the teacher adds the unknown information. So the known piece is that I know from my constructed experience of singing songs and playing games and having a collaborative musical experience and then noticing something about it. I have my own vocabulary as a student that I am using to describe what I hear. The unknown piece is when the teacher says, hey, in this classroom, that thing that we've been talking about, we're going to call that a quarter note. And this is how we are going to write it. And then this is the time to say different people in different schools and different musical settings call this something different and they uh, can write it down in a different way or they might not write it down at all. But in this class, the vocabulary we are going to use and the symbolic representation of that category that or that concept that we are going to use, that vocabulary that we are going to use, that is a quarter note and then this symbol with a circle and a line. That is the process of moving from the known to the unknown. And just a quick note here to say that I am talking about this experience building process within the vocabulary terms of prepare, present, practice. But if we zoom out and look at the actual educational framework that's being used there, what we are actually talking about is students being given the opportunity to experience and construct their own knowledge and their own understanding of a musical idea before the teacher adds what we can consider to be academic language. So uh, even though I am using these terms, prepare, present, practice, I see this framework, again, zooming out above the label, I see this as very compatible with other trains of thought in terms of how we teach music education. Most notably, um, as someone who is an ORF trained and loves the ORF approach, I see this as very compatible with imitate, explore, and then perhaps we add the label after the exploration phase. So uh, that's a separate podcast episode for a separate time and no one has submitted a question about my opinion about that and so this is not the place to have that conversation but I do want to say when we think about how students learn best when how when we think about how students create their own knowledge a lot of it does have to do and again this is a separate podcast for a separate time a lot of it does have to do with how students are interacting in a play-based way if not in a purely play context how they interact with this material outside of what the teacher wants to call it so I'll pause there and then after the teacher applies whatever vocabulary uh, label that we are going to use as a class. And again, I think of this much more as vocabulary. When I talk to other teachers and we talk about just, um, hey, what do you call this? And it's two sticks and there's a line that connects them at the top. Two sticks and a line connects them at the top. What do you call that? you will hear a myriad of answers. It's dude, it's titi, it's toddy, right? So there are so many different things. And that is just, you guys, that is just within this Western European way of thinking about music, right? Within this one very specific framework of elementary general music education, there are many labels that we could use to describe what we are hearing. And that's important. And that's the reason that I think about this as just getting on the same page 
of vocabulary rather than teaching what quote real musicians call it uh, or teaching the quote real names of these symbols. It's, it's not about what is a real name and what's not because if you call it something then to you that is its real name, right? <laughs> um, if we call it short short, well then that is the real name because that describes what it is doing. If you call it TT, well then that is the real name, right? If you call it something else out of the taiko drum tradition or out of, uh, you know, other, other musical traditions, that is its real name. So I think about this much more as getting on the same page of vocabulary after students have described to me what they notice about this musical element. Another thing that I want to think about when it comes to a concept plan, and I want to jump back to this original question about backwards planning and identifying sub skills for elementary music skills. This concept plan, that is where we're really going to hone in on the exact musical behaviors that we want students to exhibit by their time uh, that they are done with this specific melodic concept or this specific rhythmic concept. These would be subskills like, uh, let's go to a melodic understanding. Perhaps you want them to show their understanding by playing on recorder or by barred instruments or by singing a song. This is the time to identify the very specific parameters of musical behavior that you want students to show. And then my last note that I want to make about a concept plan is that you will hear people in other uh, forms of education and other areas of education talk about unit plans. This is the same thing. It is a slightly different uh, use than a unit plan in the sense that, and, and again, this depends on how you choose to structure your scope and sequence, but uh, many elementary music educators, myself included, choose not to teach music in isolated chunks, but instead to look at the threads of music and how they connect with each other throughout the year. So many of us choose not to have an isolated unit on rhythm, but instead we're working towards rhythmic understandings throughout the entire year. And same thing, we don't have an isolated unit on form. Instead, we are using form to explore musical concepts throughout the year. And so that's the only difference that I might point out between what we call a concept plan and what we call a unit plan. Mostly in my mind, it is a matter of semantics and we can kind of uh, interchange these terms without uh, much confusion. The only kind of caveat that I would consider is that uh, a unit in my mind, uh, even though it can be the exact same plan as my concept plan, a unit plan in my mind lends itself a little bit more to this isolated rhythmic unit as opposed to how the concept is used in music throughout the year. So again, that's kind of a potato potato thing, but I just want to throw that out there in the event that you need to show a unit plan and you say, no, I don't use a unit plan. I use a concept plan, right? Um, for our purposes, they are essentially the same exact thing. So let's jump back and talk about this curriculum planning process. We have started with our value statement, our mission statement in this music class, above, above. And then from there, we are talking about a curriculum outline. That is our big picture look at the entire program, at the programmatic level, K through five. 
From there, we can say, okay, so these are my big musical goals for conscious vocabulary. And from there, I can break it down to what will be manageable for me to accomplish in a single year. And by the way, when I create my scope and sequence, I'm going to allow room for sick days or taking a day off just because I feel like taking a day off or having a snow day or an assembly or a program. I'm going to build all of that into my year so I'm not stressed when all of a sudden it's April and I have a concert coming up. I know what I need to accomplish all along the way. After our scope and sequence, we are thinking about the context, that is the repertoire, the uh, song lists, and then the concept plans. The concept plans are the very specific teaching strategies that move students through the learning process. When we have our concept plans kind of laid out, we are just going to look at, again, the next logical thing. What is the next step in this learning progression that students are going to experience? And from those logical next steps of the learning sequence, that is where the actual lesson plans come into play. So the lesson plans come very, very, very last. This is the process of long-range planning. This is what we mean when we say backwards planning. We're taking a very big picture and then uh, incrementally, logically, <laughs> moving down to the next smaller component, next smaller component, next smaller component. When we do this and we get, quote, off track <laughs> for the year... Uh, that's not a problem at all because I'm not actually off track because I haven't lost my mission statement. I started with my mission statement on purpose and I haven't lost track because I know where I am in terms of my big picture programmatic outline, which is why we did that next. And I haven't lost track. I'm not off track because I actually know, let's jump back to this roadmap analogy. I actually know that I decided to uh, take a detour and stop here for burgers and now I know how how to get back onto the map that I created earlier. And so even if I change, even if I choose to change my pacing throughout the year, I am not just like wandering in space, wondering what I should teach next class. I will never wonder what I should teach in my next lesson. It is always crystal clear what needs to come next because we started with this big picture map instead of searching Pinterest for activities that are fun to use. So I want to reiterate, if you are someone, uh, and my hand is up here with you, who says like, oh, I make these plans, these big plans for my year, but I don't stick to them. That's totally, totally normal. The point is not to make a plan that you have to stick to in a really rigid way. The point is having a framework with intention for your year and then your program. And then in the learning process, moving from the known to the unknown so that students have lots of opportunities for active musicking. When we long range plan for our specific music programs, the point is not to fill out templates. The point is not to fill out a document. The point is to think with intention about what your ultimate goal is and how to construct student experiences that lead them towards that goal in an authentic and play-based way. 
If this is an approach to planning your music curriculum that you really connect with and that you think would be beneficial and that you would enjoy walking through, there are a few resources that I want to just mention very quickly here at the end. Uh, one resource that I have is called the Elementary Music Planning Kit, and that is available at victoriabowler.com. And that kind of walks you through this uh, big picture approach to curriculum planning as opposed to lesson to lesson planning. And that has all sorts of things like uh, templates and guides and videos and things like that. The other resource is the planning binder and that has everything, uh, almost everything from the elementary music planning kit, but it is actually the plans filled out with room for you to make your own variations of those plans. So I want to just very quickly mention those at the end in the event that you would be interested in learning more kind of in depth about this approach to music planning. All right. I hope you have a fabulous Wednesday. Take care, make music. I'm wishing you all the best with the rest of your week.